Section 30 of Why Do We Need a Public Library? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Why Do We Need a Public Library? By Various. Section 30. The Rights of Man. Response to Burke. Part 2. By Thomas Paine. I have now to follow Mr. Burke through a pathless wilderness of rhapsodies and a sort of descant upon governments, in which he asserts whatever he pleases, on the presumption of its being believed, without offering either evidence or reasons for so doing. Before anything can be reasoned upon to a conclusion, certain facts, principles, or data to reason from must be established, admitted, or denied. Mr. Burke, with his usual outrage, abused the Declaration of the Rights of Man, published by the National Assembly of France, as the basis on which the Constitution of France is built. This he calls, quote, paltry and blurred sheets of paper about the rights of man, unquote. Does Mr. Burke mean to deny that man has any rights? If he does, then he must mean that there are no such things as rights anywhere, and that he is not himself, for who is there in the world but man? But if Mr. Burke means to admit that man has rights, the question then will be, what are those rights and how man came by them originally? The error of those who reason by precedents drawn from antiquity respecting the rights of man is that they do not go far enough into antiquity. They do not go the whole way. They stop in some of the intermediate stages of a hundred or a thousand years and produce what was then done as a rule for the present day. This is no authority at all. If we travel still farther into antiquity, we shall find a direct contrary opinion and practice prevailing. And if antiquity is to be authority, a thousand such authorities may be produced successively contradicting each other. But if we proceed on, we shall at last come outright. We shall come to the time when man came from the hand of his maker. What was he then? Man. Man was his high and only title, and a higher cannot be given him but of titles I shall speak hereafter. We are now got at the origin of man and at the origin of his rights. As to the manner in which the world has been governed from that day to this, it is no farther any concern of ours than to make a proper use of the errors or the improvements which the history of it presents. Those who lived a hundred or a thousand years ago were then moderns as we are now. They had their ancients, and those ancients had others, and we also shall be ancients in our turn. If the mere name of antiquity is to govern in the affairs of life, the people who are to live a hundred or a thousand years hence may as well take us for a precedent as we make a precedent of those who lived a hundred or a thousand years ago. The fact is that portions of antiquity, by proving everything, establish nothing. It is authority against authority all the way till we come to the divine origin of the rights of man at the creation. Here our inquiries find a resting place and our reason finds a home. If a dispute about the rights of man had arisen at the distance of a hundred years from the creation, it is to this source of authority they must have referred, and it is to this same source of authority that we must now refer. Though I mean not to touch upon any sectarian principle of religion, yet it may be worth observing that the genealogy of Christ is traced to Adam. Why then not trace the rights of man to the creation of man? I will answer the question because there have been upstart governments thrusting themselves between and presumptuously working to unmake man. If any generation of men ever possessed the right of dictating the mode by which the world should be governed forever, it was the first generation that existed, 
And if that generation did it not, no succeeding generation can show any authority for doing it, nor can set any up. The illuminating and divine principle of the equal rights of man, for it has its origin from the maker of man, relates not only to the living individuals, but to generations of men succeeding each other. Every generation is equal in rights to generations which preceded it by the same rule that every individual is born equal in rights with his contemporary. Every history of the creation and every traditionary account, whether from the lettered or unlettered world, however they may vary in their opinion or belief of certain particulars, all agree in establishing one point, the unity of man, by which I mean that men are all of one degree, and consequently that all men are born equal, and with equal natural right in the same manner as if posterity had been continued by creation instead of generation, the latter being the only mode by which the former is carried forward, and consequently every child born into the world must be considered as deriving its existence from God. The world is as new to him as it was to the first man that existed, and his natural right in it is of the same kind. The mosaic account of the creation, whether taken as divine authority or merely historical, is full to this point, the unity or equality of man. The expression admits of no controversy. Quote, and God said, Let us make man in our own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Unquote. The distinction of sexes is pointed out, but no other distinction is even implied. If this be not divine authority, it is at least historical authority, and shows that the equality of man so far from being a modern doctrine is the oldest upon record. It is also to be observed that all the religions known in the world are founded, so far as they relate to man, on the unity of man as being all of one degree. Whether in heaven or in hell, or in whatever state man may be supposed to exist hereafter, the good and the bad are the only distinctions. Nay, even the laws of governments are obliged to slide into this principle, by making degrees to consist in crimes and not in persons. It is one of the greatest of all truths, and of the highest advantage to cultivate. By considering man in this light, and by instructing him to consider himself in this light, it places him in a close connection with all his duties, whether to his creator or to the creation, of which he is a part, and it is only when he forgets his origin, or, to use a more fashionable phrase, his birth and family, that he becomes dissolute. It is not among the least of the evils of the present existing governments in all parts of Europe that man, considered as man, is thrown back to a vast distance from his maker, and the artificial chasm filled up with a succession of barriers, or sort of turnpike gates, through which he has to pass. I will quote Mr. Burke's catalogue of barriers that he has set up between man and his maker. Putting himself in the character of a herald, he says, quote, We fear God, we look with all to kings, with affection to parliaments, with duty to magistrates, with reverence to priests, and with respect to nobility, unquote. Mr. Burke has forgotten to put in chivalry. He has also forgotten to put in Peter. The duty of man is not a wilderness of turnpike gates through which he is to pass by tickets from one to the other. It is plain and simple, and consists but of two points, his duty to God, which every man must feel, and with respect to his neighbor, to do as he would be done by. If those to whom power is delegated do well, they will be respected. If not, they will be despised. And with regard to those to whom no power is delegated, 
but who assume it, the rational world can know nothing of them. Hitherto we have spoken only, and that but in part, of the natural rights of man. We have now to consider the civil rights of man, and to show how the one originates from the other. Man did not enter into society to become worse than he was before, nor to have fewer rights than he had before, but to have those rights better secured. His natural rights are the foundation of all his civil rights. But in order to pursue this distinction with more precision, it will be necessary to mark the different qualities of natural and civil rights. A few words will explain this. Natural rights are those which appertain to man in right of his existence. Of this kind are all the intellectual rights or rights of the mind, and also all those rights of acting as an individual for his own comfort and happiness, which are not injurious to the natural rights of others. Civil rights are those which appertain to man in right of his being a member of society. Every civil right has for its foundation some natural right pre-existing in the individual, but to the enjoyment of which his individual power is not, in all cases, sufficiently competent. Of this kind are all those which relate to security and protection. From this short review, it will be easy to distinguish between that class of natural rights which man retains after entering into society and those which he throws into the common stock as a member of society. The natural rights which he retains are all those in which the power to execute is as perfect in the individual as the right itself. Among this class, as is before mentioned, are all the intellectual rights or rights of the mind. Consequently, religion is one of those rights. The natural rights which are not retained are all those in which, though the right is perfect in the individual, the power to execute them is defective. They answer not his purpose. A man, by natural right, has a right to judge in his own cause, and so far as the right of the mind is concerned, he never surrenders it. But what availeth it him to judge if he has not power to redress? He therefore deposits this right in the common stock of society, and takes the an of society of which he is a part in preference and in addition to his own. Society grants him nothing. Every man is a proprietor in society and draws on the capital as a matter of right. From these premises, two or three certain conclusions will follow. First, that every civil right grows out of a natural right, or in other words, is a natural right exchanged. Secondly, that civil power properly considered as such is made up of the aggregate of that class of the natural rights of man, which becomes defective in the individual in point of power, and answers not his purpose, but when collected to a focus becomes competent to the purpose of everyone. Thirdly, that the power produced from the aggregate of natural rights, imperfect in power in the individual, cannot be applied to invade the natural rights which are retained in the individual, and which the power to execute is as perfect as the right itself. We have now, in a few words, traced man from a natural individual to a member of society, and shown, or endeavored to show, the quality of the natural rights retained, and of those which are exchanged for civil rights. Let us now apply these principles to governments. In casting our eyes over the world, it is extremely easy to distinguish the governments which have arisen out of society, or out of the social compact, from those which have not. But to place this in a clearer light than what a single glance may afford, it will be proper to take a review of the several sources from which governments have arisen and on which they have been founded. They may be all comprehended under three heads. First, superstition. 
Secondly, power. Thirdly, the common interest of society and the common rights of man. The first was a government of priestcraft, the second of conquerors, and the third of reason. When a set of artful men pretended, through the medium of oracles, to hold intercourse with the deity as familiarly as they now march up the back stairs in European courts, the world was completely under the government of superstition. The oracles were consulted, and whatever they were made to say became the law, and this sort of government lasted as long as this sort of superstition lasted. After these, a race of conquerors arose, whose government, like that of William the Conqueror, was founded in power, and the sword assumed the name of a scepter. Governments thus established last as long as the power to support them lasts, but that they might avail themselves of every engine in their favor, they united fraud to force and set up an idol, which they called divine right, and which, in imitation of the Pope, who affects to be spiritual and temporal, and in contradiction to the founder of the Christian religion, twisted itself afterwards into an idol of another shape, called church and state. The key of St. Peter and the key of the treasury became quartered in one another, and the wondering, cheated multitude worshipped the invention. When I contemplate the natural dignity of man, when I feel, for nature has not been kind enough to me to blunt my feelings, for the honor and happiness of its character, I become irritated at the attempt to govern mankind by force and fraud as if they were all knaves and fools, and can scarcely avoid disgust at those who are thus imposed upon. We have now to review the governments which arise out of society, in contradistinction to those which arose out of superstition and conquest. It has been thought a considerable advance towards establishing the principles of freedom to say that government is a compact between those who govern and those who are governed, but this cannot be true, because it is putting the effect before the cause. For as man must have existed before governments existed, there necessarily was a time when governments did not exist, and consequently there could originally exist no governors to form such a compact with. The fact must be that the individuals themselves, each in his own personal and sovereign right, entered into a compact with each other to produce a government, and this is the only mode in which governments have a right to arise, and the only principle on which they have a right to exist. To possess ourselves of a clear idea of what government is or ought to be, we must trace it to its origin. In doing this, we shall easily discover that governments must have arisen, either out of the people or over the people. Mr. Burke has made no distinction. He investigates nothing to its source, and therefore he confounds everything. But he has signified his intention of undertaking, at some future opportunity, a comparison between the Constitution of England and France. As he thus renders it a subject of controversy by throwing the gauntlet, I take him upon his own ground. It is in high challenges that high truths have the right of appearing, and I accept it with the more readiness because it affords me, at the same time, an opportunity of pursuing the subject with respect to governments arising out of society. But it will be first necessary to define what is meant by a constitution. It is not sufficient that we adopt the word. We must fix also a standard signification to it. A constitution is not a thing in name only, but in fact. It has not an ideal but a real existence, and wherever it cannot be produced in a visible form, there is none. A constitution is a thing antecedent to a government, and a government is only the creature of a constitution. The constitution of a country is not the act of its government, but of the people constituting its government. 
It is the body of elements to which you can refer and quote article by article, and which contains the principles on which the government shall be established, the manner in which it shall be organized, the powers it shall have, the mode of elections, the duration of parliaments, or by what other name such bodies may be called, the powers which the executive part of the government shall have, and in fine, everything that relates to the complete organization of a civil government, and the principles on which it shall act, and by which it shall be bound. A constitution, therefore, is to a government what the laws made afterwards by that government are to a court of judicature. The court of judicature does not make the laws, neither can it alter them. It only acts in conformity to the laws made, and the government is, in like manner, governed by the Constitution. Can, then, Mr. Burke produce the English Constitution? If he cannot, we may fairly conclude that though it has been so much talked about, no such thing as a Constitution exists, or ever did exist, and consequently that the people have yet a Constitution to form. Mr. Burke will not, I presume, deny the position I have already advanced. Mr. Burke will not, I presume, deny the position I have already advanced, namely, that governments arise either out of the people or over the people. The English government is one of those which arose out of a conquest and not out of society, and consequently it arose over the people, and though it has been much modified from the opportunity of circumstances since the time of William the Conqueror, the country has never yet regenerated itself and is therefore without a constitution. I readily perceive the reason why Mr. Burke declined going into the comparison between the English and French constitutions, because he could not but perceive when he sat down to the task that no such thing as a constitution existed on his side of the question. His book is certainly bulky enough to have contained all he could say on this subject, and it would have been the best manner in which people could have judged of their separate merits. Why then has he declined the only thing that was worthwhile to write upon? It was the strongest ground he could take if the advantages were on his side, but the weakest if they were not, and his declining to take it is either a sign that he could not possess it or could not maintain it. Mr. Burke said in a speech last winter in Parliament, quote, that when the National Assembly first met in three orders, the tiers atat, the clergy, and the noblesse, France had then a good constitution, unquote. This shows, among numerous other instances, that Mr. Burke does not understand what a constitution is. The persons so met were not a constitution, but a convention to make a constitution. The present National Assembly of France is, strictly speaking, the personal social compact. The members of it are the delegates of the nation in its original character. Future assemblies will be the delegates of the nation in its organized character. The authority of the present assembly is different from what the authority of future assemblies will be. The authority of the present one is to form a constitution. The authority of future assemblies will be to legislate according to the principles and forms prescribed in that constitution, and if experience should hereafter show that alterations, amendments, or additions are necessary, the constitution will point out the mode by which such things shall be done and not leave it to the discretionary power of the future government. A government on the principles on which constitutional governments arising out of society are established cannot have the right of altering itself. If it had, it would be arbitrary. It might make itself what it pleased. And wherever such a right is set up, it shows there is no constitution. The act by which the English Parliament empowered itself to sit seven years shows there is no constitution in England. 
It might, by the same self-authority, have sat any great number of years or for life. The bill which the present Mr. Pitt brought into Parliament some years ago to reform Parliament was on the same erroneous principle. The right of reform is in the nation in its original character, and the constitutional method would be by a general convention elected for the purpose. There is, moreover, a paradox in the idea of vitiated bodies reforming themselves. From these preliminaries I proceed to draw some comparisons. I have already spoken of the Declaration of Rights, and as I mean to be as concise as possible, I shall proceed to other parts of the French Constitution. The Constitution of France says that every man who pays a tax of 60 sous per annum, or two shilling sixpence in English, is an elector. What article will Mr. Burke place against this? Can anything be more limited, and at the same time more capricious, than the qualification of electors is in England? Limited, because not one man in a hundred, I speak much within compass, is admitted to vote. Capricious, because the lowest character that can be supposed to exist, and who has not so much as the visible means of an honest livelihood, is an elector in some places, while in other places the man who pays very large taxes, and has a known fair character, and the farmer who rents to the amount of three or four hundred pounds a year, with a property on that farm to three or four times that amount, is not admitted to be an elector. Everything is out of nature, as Mr. Burke says on another occasion, in this strange chaos, and all sorts of follies are blended with all sorts of crimes. William the Conqueror and his descendants parceled out the country in this manner, and bribed some parts of it by what they call charters, to hold the other parts of it the better subjected to their will. This is the reason why so many of those charters abound in Cornwall. The people were averse to the government established at the conquest and the towns were garrisoned and bribed to enslave the country. All the old charters are the badges of this conquest, and it is from this source that the capriciousness of election arises. The French Constitution says that the number of representatives for any place shall be in a ratio to the number of taxable inhabitants or electors. What article will Mr. Burke place against this? The County of York, which contains nearly a million of souls, sends two county members, and so does the county of Rutland, which contains not a hundredth part of that number. The old town of Sarum, which contains not three houses, sends two members, and the town of Manchester, which contains upward of 60,000 souls, is not admitted to send any. Is there any principle in these things? It is admitted that all this is altered, but there is much to be done yet before we have a fair representation of the people. Is there anything by which you can trace the marks of freedom or discover those of wisdom? No wonder, then, Mr. Burke has declined the comparison and endeavored to lead his readers from the point by a wild, unsystematical display of paradoxical rhapsodies. The French Constitution says that the National Assembly shall be elected every two years. What article will Mr. Burke place against this? Why, that the nation has no right at all in the case, that the government is perfectly arbitrary with respect to this point, and he can quote for his authority the precedent of a former parliament. The French Constitution says there shall be no game laws, that the farmer on whose lands wild game shall be found, for it is by the produce of his lands they are fed, shall have a right to what he can take, that there shall be no monopolies of any kind, that all trades shall be free, and every man free to follow any occupation by which he can procure an honest livelihood, and in any place, town, or city throughout the nation. What will Mr. Burke say to this? In England, game is made the property of those at whose expense it is not fed. 
and with respect to monopolies, the country is cut up into monopolies. Every chartered town is an aristocratical monopoly in itself, and the qualification of electors proceeds out of those chartered monopolies. Is this freedom? Is this what Mr. Burke means by a constitution? In these chartered monopolies, a man coming from another part of the country is hunted from them as if he were a foreign enemy. An Englishman is not free of his own country. Every one of those places presents a barrier in his way and tells him he is not a free man, that he has no rights. Within these monopolies are other monopolies. In a city such, for instance, as Bath, which contains between twenty and 30,000 inhabitants, the right of electing representatives to Parliament is monopolized by about 31 persons. And within these monopolies are still others. A man, even of the same town, whose parents were not in circumstances to give him an occupation, is debarred in many cases from the natural right of acquiring one, be his genius or industry what it may. Are these things examples to hold out to a country regenerating itself from slavery like France? Certainly they are not, and certain am I that when the people of England come to reflect upon them, they will, like France, annihilate those badges of ancient oppression, those traces of a conquered nation. Had Mr. Burke possessed talents similar to the author of On the Wealth of Nations, he would have comprehended all the parts which enter into, and by assemblage, form a constitution. He would have reasoned from minutiae to magnitude. It is not from his prejudices only, but from the disorderly cast of his genius, that he is unfitted for the subject he writes upon. Even his genius is without a constitution. It is a genius at random, and not a genius constituted. But he must say something. He is therefore mounted in the air like a balloon to draw the eyes of the multitude from the ground they stand upon. Much is to be learned from the French Constitution. Conquest and tyranny transplanted themselves with William the Conqueror from Normandy into England, and the country is yet disfigured with the marks. May then the example of all France contribute to regenerate the freedom which a province of it destroyed. The French Constitution says that to preserve the national representation from being corrupt, no member of the National Assembly shall be an officer of the government, a placeman, or a pensioner. What will Mr. Burke place against this? I will whisper his answer, loaves and fishes. Ah, this government of loaves and fishes has more mischief in it than people have yet reflected on. The National Assembly has made the discovery, and it holds out the example to the world. Had governments agreed to quarrel on purpose to fleece their countries by taxes, they could not have succeeded better than they have done. Everything in the English government appears to me the reverse of what it ought to be, and of what it is said to be. The Parliament, imperfectly and capriciously elected as it is, is nevertheless supposed to hold the national purse in trust for the nation. But in the manner in which an English Parliament is constructed, it is like a man being both mortgager and mortgagee, and in the case of misapplication of trust, it is the criminal sitting in judgment upon himself. If those who vote the supplies are the same persons who receive the supplies when voted, and are to account for the expenditure of those supplies to those who voted them, it is themselves accountable to themselves, and the comedy of errors concludes with the pantomime of hush. Neither the ministerial party nor the opposition will touch upon this case. The national purse is the common hack which each mounts upon. It is like what the country people call, quote, ride and tie, you ride a little way, and then I, unquote. Footnote. It is a practice in some parts of the country, when two travelers have but one horse, which, like the national purse, will not carry double, that the one mounts and rides two or three miles ahead, 
and then ties the horse to a gate and walks on. When the second traveler arrives, he takes the horse, rides on, and passes his companion a mile or two, and ties again, and so on, ride and tie. End of footnote. They order these things better in France. The French Constitution says that the right of war and peace is in the nation. Where else should it reside but in those who are to pay the expense? In England, this right is said to reside in a metaphor shown at the tower for sixpence or a shilling apiece. So are the lions, and it would be a step nearer to reason to say it resided in them, for any inanimate metaphor is no more than a hat or a cap. We can all see the absurdity of worshipping Aaron's molten calf or Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, but why do men continue to practice themselves the absurdities they despise in others? It may with reason be said that in the manner the English nation is represented, it signifies not where the right resides, whether in the crown or in the parliament. War is the common harvest of all those who participate in the division and expenditure of public money. In all countries, it is the art of conquering at home. The object of it is an increase of revenue. And as revenue cannot be increased without taxes, a pretense must be made for expenditure. In reviewing the history of the English government, its wars and taxes, a bystander, not blinded by prejudice nor warped by interest, would declare that taxes were not raised to carry on wars, but that wars were raised to carry on taxes. Mr. Burke, as a member of the House of Commons, is a part of the English government, and though he professes himself an enemy to war, he abuses the French constitution, which seeks to explode it. He holds up the English government as a model in all its parts to France, but he should first know the remarks which the French make upon it. They contend in favor of their own, that the portion of liberty enjoyed in England is just enough to enslave a country more productively than by despotism, and that as the real object of all despotism is revenue, a government so formed obtains more than it could do either by direct despotism or in a full state of freedom and is therefore, on the ground of interest, opposed to both. They account also for the readiness which always appears in such governments for engaging in wars by remarking on the different motives which produce them. In despotic governments, wars are the effect of pride, but in those governments in which they become the means of taxation, they acquire thereby a more permanent promptitude. The French Constitution, therefore, to provide against both these evils, has taken away the power of declaring war from kings and ministers, and place the right where the expense must fall. When the question of the right of war and peace was agitating in the National Assembly, the people of England appeared to be much interested in the event, and highly to applaud the decision. As a principle, it applies as much to one country as another. William the Conqueror, as a conqueror, held this power of war and peace in himself, and his descendants have ever since claimed it under him as a right. Although Mr. Burke has asserted the right of the Parliament at the Revolution to bind and control the nation and posterity forever, he denies at the same time that the Parliament or the nation had any right to alter what he calls the succession of the crown, in anything but in part, or by a sort of modification. By his taking this ground, he throws the case back to the Norman Conquest, and by thus running a line of succession springing from William the Conqueror to the present day, he makes it necessary to inquire who and what William the Conqueror was, and where he came from, and into the origin, history, and nature of what are called prerogatives. Everything must have had a beginning, and the fog of time and antiquity should be penetrated to discover it. Let, then, Mr. Burke bring forward his William of Normandy, for it is to this origin that his argument goes. 
It also unfortunately happens in running this line of succession that another line parallel thereto presents itself, which is that if the succession runs in the line of the conquest, the nation runs in the line of being conquered, and it ought to rescue itself from this reproach. But it will perhaps be said that though the power of declaring war descends in the heritage of the conquest, it is held in check by the right of Parliament to withhold the supplies. It will always happen when a thing is originally wrong that amendments do not make it right, and it often happens that they do as much mischief one way as good the other, and such is the case here. For if the one rashly declares a war as a matter of right, and the other peremptorily withholds the supplies as a matter of right, the remedy becomes as bad or worse than disease. The one forces the nation to a combat, and the other ties its hands. But the more probable issue is that the contest will end in a collusion between the parties and be made a screen to both. On this question of war, three things are to be considered. First, the right of declaring it. Secondly, the expense of supporting it. Thirdly, the mode of conducting it after it is declared. The French Constitution places the right where the expense must fall, and this union can only be in the nation. The mode of conducting it, after it is declared, it consigns to the executive department. Were this the case in all countries, we should hear but little more of wars. Before I proceed to consider other parts of the French Constitution, and by way of relieving the fatigue of argument, I will introduce an anecdote which I had from Dr. Franklin. While the doctor resided in France as minister from America during the war, he had numerous proposals made to him by projectors of every country and of every kind, who wished to go to the land that floweth with milk and honey, America, and among the rest there was one who offered himself to be king. He introduced his proposal to the doctor by letter, which is now in the hands of Monsieur Beaumarchais of Paris, stating first that as the Americans had dismissed or sent away their king, that they would want another. Footnote. The word he used was renvoyer, dismissed or sent away. End of footnote. Secondly, that himself was a Norman. Thirdly, that he was of a more ancient family than the Dukes of Normandy, and of a more honorable descent, his line having never been bastardized. Fourthly, that there was already a precedent in England of kings coming out of Normandy, and on these grounds he rested his offer, enjoining that the doctor would forward it to America. But as the doctor neither did this nor yet sent him an answer, the projector wrote a second letter, in which he did not, it is true, threaten to go over and conquer America, but only with great dignity proposed that if his offer was not accepted, an acknowledgment of about 30,000 livres might be made to him for his generosity. Now, as all arguments respecting secession must necessarily connect that succession with some beginning, Mr. Burke's arguments on this subject go to show that there is no English origin of kings, and that they are descendants of the Norman line in right of the conquest. It may therefore be of service to his doctrine to make this story known and to inform him that in case of that natural extinction to which all mortality is subject, kings may again be had from Normandy on more reasonable terms than William the Conqueror, and consequently that the good people of England at the Revolution of 1688 might have done much better had such a generous Norman as this known their wants and they had known his. The chivalric character which Mr. Burke so much admires is certainly much easier to make a bargain with than a hard-dealing Dutchman. But to return to the matters of the Constitution, the French Constitution says there shall be no titles, and of consequence, 
all that class of equivocal generation which in some countries is called aristocracy and in others nobility is done away and the peer is exalted into the man titles are but nicknames and every nickname is a title the thing is perfectly harmless in itself but it marks a sort of foppery in the human character which degrades it it reduces man into the diminutive of man in things which are great and the counterfeit of women in things which are little it talks about its fine blue ribbon like a girl and shows its new garter like a child a certain writer of some antiquity says quote, when i was a child i thought as a child but when i became a man i put away childish things unquote. it is properly from the elevated mind of france that the folly of titles has fallen it has outgrown the baby clothes of count and duke and breached itself in manhood france has not leveled it is exalted it has put down the dwarf to set up the man the punism of a senseless word like duke, count, or earl has ceased to please. Even those who possess them have disowned the gibberish, and as they outgrew the rickets have despised the rattle. The genuine mind of man, thirsting for its native home, society, contemns the gigaws that separate him from it. Titles are like circles drawn by the magician's wand to contract the sphere of man's felicity. He lives immured within the bastille of a word and surveys at a distance the envied life of man. Is it then any wonder that titles should fall in France? Is it not a greater wonder that they should be kept up anywhere? What are they? What is their worth and what is their amount? When we think or speak of a judge or a general, we associate with it the ideas of office and character. We think of gravity in one and bravery in the other. But when we use the word merely as a title, no ideas associate with it. Through all the vocabulary of Adam, there is not such an animal as a duke or a count, neither can we connect any certain ideas with the words. Whether they mean strength or weakness, wisdom or folly, a child or a man, or the rider or the horse, is all equivocal. What respect, then, can be paid to that which describes nothing and which means nothing? Imagination has given figure and character to centaurs, satyrs, and down to all the fairy tribe, but titles baffle even the powers of fancy, and are a chimerical nondescript. But this is not all. If a whole country is disposed to hold them in contempt, and all their value is gone, and none will own them, it is common opinion only that makes them anything, or nothing, or worse than nothing. There is no occasion to take titles away, for they take themselves away when society concurs to ridicule them. This species of imaginary consequence has visibly declined in every part of Europe, and it hastens to its exit as the world of reason continues to rise. There was a time when the lowest class of what are called nobility was more thought of than the highest is now, and when a man in armor riding through Christendom in quest of adventures was more stared at than a modern duke. The world has seen this folly fall, and it has fallen by being laughed at, and the farce of titles will follow its fate. The patriots of France have discovered in good time that rank and dignity in society must take a new ground. The old one has fallen through. It must now take the substantial ground of character instead of the chimerical ground of titles, and they have brought their titles to the altar and made of them a burnt offering to reason. If no mischief had annexed itself to the folly of titles, they would not have been worth a serious and formal destruction, such as the National Assembly have decreed them. And this makes it necessary to inquire farther into the nature and character of aristocracy. That, then, which is called aristocracy in some countries, and nobility in others, 
arose out of the governments founded upon conquest. It was originally a military order for the purpose of supporting military government, for such were all governments founded in conquest, and to keep up a succession of this order for the purpose for which it was established. All the younger branches of those families were disinherited and a law of primogenitorship set up. The nature and character of aristocracy shows itself to us in this law. It is the law against every other law of nature, and nature herself calls for its destruction. Establish family justice, and aristocracy falls. By the aristocratical law of primogenitorship, in a family of six children, five are exposed. Aristocracy is never more than one child. The rest are begotten to be devoured. They are thrown to the cannibal for prey, and the natural parent prepares the unnatural repast. As everything which is out of nature in man affects more or less the interest of society, so does this. All the children which the aristocracy disowns, which are all except the eldest, are in general cast like orphans on a parish to be provided for by the public, but at a greater charge. Unnecessary offices and places in government and courts are created at the expense of the public to maintain them. With what kind of parental reflections can the father or mother contemplate their younger offspring? By nature they are children, and by marriage they are heirs, but by aristocracy they are bastards and orphans. They are the flesh and blood of their parents in the one line, and nothing akin to them in the other. To restore, therefore, parents to their children, and children to their parents, relations to each other, and man to society, and to exterminate the monster aristocracy, root and branch, the French Constitution has destroyed the law of primogenitorship. Here, then, lies the monster, and Mr. Burke, if he pleases, may write its epitaph. Hitherto we have considered aristocracy chiefly in one point of view. We have now to consider it in another. But whether we view it before or behind, or sideways or any way else, domestically or publicly, it is still a monster. In France, aristocracy had one feature less in its countenance than what it has in some other countries. It did not compose a body of hereditary legislators. It was not a corporation of aristocracy, for such I have heard Monsieur de Lafayette describe an English house of peers. Let us then examine the grounds upon which the French Constitution has resolved against having such a house in France. Because in the first place, as is already mentioned, aristocracy is kept up by family tyranny and injustice. Secondly, because there is an unnatural unfitness in an aristocracy to be legislators for a nation, their ideas of distributive justice are corrupted at the very source. They begin life by trampling on all their younger brothers and sisters and relations of every kind, and are taught and educated so to do. With what ideas of justice or honor can that man enter a house of legislation, who absorbs in his own person the inheritance of a whole family of children, or doles out to them some pitiful portion with the insolence of a gift? Thirdly, because the idea of hereditary legislators is as inconsistent as that of hereditary judges or hereditary juries, and as absurd as a hereditary mathematician or hereditary wise man, and as ridiculous as a hereditary poet laureate. Fourthly, because a body of men holding themselves accountable to nobody ought not to be trusted by anybody. Fifthly, because it is continuing the uncivilized principle of governments founded in conquest, and the base idea of man having property in man and governing him by personal right. Sixthly, because aristocracy has a tendency to deteriorate the human species. By the universal economy of nature it is known, 
and by the instance of the Jews it is proved that the human species has a tendency to degenerate in any small number of persons when separated from the general stock of society and intermarrying constantly with each other. It defeats even its pretended end and becomes in time the opposite of what is noble in man. Mr. Burke talks of nobility. Let him show what it is. The greatest characters the world have known have arisen on the democratic floor. Aristocracy has not been able to keep a proportionate pace with democracy. The artificial noble shrinks into a dwarf before the noble of nature, and in the few instances of those, for there are some in all countries, in whom nature, as by a miracle, has survived an aristocracy, those men despise it. But it is time to proceed to a new subject. The French Constitution has reformed the condition of the clergy. It has raised the income of the lower and middle classes, and taken from the higher. None are now less than 1,200 livres, 50 pounds sterling, nor any higher than two or 3,000 pounds. What will Mr. Burke place against this? Hear what he says. He says, quote, that the people of England can see, without pain or grudging, an archbishop precede a duke. They can see a bishop of Durham or a bishop of Winchester in possession of 10,000 pounds a year, and cannot see why it is in worse hands than estates to a like amount in the hands of this earl or that squire, unquote. And Mr. Burke offers this as an example to France. As to the first part, whether the archbishop precedes the duke or the duke the bishop, it is, I believe, to the people in general, somewhat like Sternhold and Hopkins, or Hopkins and Sternhold. You may put what you pleased first, and as I confess that I do not understand the merits of the case, I will not contest it with Mr. Burke. But, with respect to the latter, I have something to say. Mr. Burke has not put the case right. The comparison is out of order, by being put between the bishop and the earl or the squire. It ought to be put between the bishop and the curate. And then it will stand thus, quote, The people of England can see, without pain or grudging, a bishop of Durham or a bishop of Winchester, in possession of 10,000 pounds a year, and a curate on 30 or 40 pounds a year or less, unquote. No, sir. They certainly do not see those things without great pain or grudging. It is a case that applies itself to every man's sense of justice, and is one among many that calls aloud for a constitution. In France, the cry of the church, the church, was repeated as often as in Mr. Burke's book, and as loudly as when the dissenter's bill was before the English Parliament. But the generality of the French clergy were not to be deceived by this cry any longer. They knew that whatever the pretense might be, it was they who were one of the principal objects of it. It was the cry of the high-beneficed clergy to prevent any regulation of income taking place between those of £10,000 a year and the parish priest. They therefore joined their case to those of every other oppressed class of men, and by this union obtained redress. The French Constitution has abolished tithes, that source of perpetual discontent between the tithe-holder and the parishioner. When land is held on tithe, it is in the condition of an estate held between two parties, the one receiving one-tenth and the other nine-tenths of the produce, and consequently, on principles of equity, if the estate can be improved and made to produce by that improvement double or treble what it did before, or in any other ratio, the expense of such improvement ought to be borne in like proportion between the parties who are to share the produce. But this is not the case in tithes. The farmer bears the whole expense, and the tithe-holder takes a tenth of the improvement in addition to the original tenth, and by this means gets the value of two-tenths instead of one. This is another case that calls for a constitution. 
The French Constitution hath abolished or renounced toleration and intolerance also, and hath established universal right of conscience. Toleration is not the opposite of intolerance, but is the counterfeit of it. Both are despotisms. The one assumes to itself the right of withholding liberty of conscience, and the other of granting it. The one is the Pope armed with fire and faggot, and the other is the Pope selling or granting indulgences. The former is church and state, and the latter is church and traffic. But toleration may be viewed in a much stronger light. Man worships not himself but his maker, and the liberty of conscience which he claims is not for the service of himself but of his God. In this case, therefore, we must necessarily have the associated idea of two things, the mortal who renders the worship and the immortal being who is worshipped. Toleration, therefore, places itself not between man and man, nor between church and church, nor between one denomination of religion and another, but between God and man, between the being who worships and the being who is worshipped, and by the same act of assumed authority which it tolerates man to pay his worship, it presumptuously and blasphemously sets itself up to tolerate the Almighty to receive it. Were a bill brought into any parliament entitled, An Act to Tolerate or Grant Liberty to the Almighty to Receive the Worship of a Jew or Turk, or to Prohibit the Almighty from Receiving it, all men would startle and call it blasphemy. There would be an uproar. The presumption of tolerance in religious matters would then present itself unmasked, but the presumption is not the less because the name of man only appears to those laws. For the associated idea of the worshipper and the worshipped cannot be separated. Who then art thou, vain dust and ashes, by whatever name thou art called, whether a king, a bishop, a church, or a state, a parliament, or anything else, that obtrudest thine insignificance between the soul of man and its maker? Mind thine own concerns. If he believes not as thou believest, it is a proof that thou believest not as he believes, and there is no earthly power that can determine between you. With respect to what are called denominations of religion, if everyone is left to judge of its own religion, there is no such thing as a religion that is wrong. But if they are to judge of each other's religion, there is no such thing as a religion that is right, and therefore all the world is right, or all the world is wrong. But with respect to religion itself, without regard to names, and as directing itself from the universal family of mankind to the divine object of all adoration, it is man bringing to his maker the fruits of his heart, and though those fruits may differ from each other like the fruits of the earth, the grateful tribute of every one is accepted. A bishop of Durham or a bishop of Winchester, or the archbishop who heads the dukes, will not refuse a tithe sheaf of wheat because it is not a cock of hay, nor a cock of hay because it is not a sheaf of wheat, nor a pig because it is neither one nor the other. But these same persons, under the figure of an established church, will not permit their maker to receive the varied tithes of man's devotion. One of the continual choruses of Mr. Burke's book is Church and State. He does not mean some one particular church or some one particular state, but any church and state, and he uses the term as a general figure to hold forth the political doctrine of always uniting the church with the state in every country, and he censures the National Assembly for not having done this in France. Let us bestow a few thoughts on this subject. All religions are in their nature kind and benign and united with principles of morality. They could not have made proselytes at first by professing anything that was vicious, cruel, persecuting, or immoral. 
Like everything else, they had their beginning, and they proceeded by persuasion, exhortation, and example. How then is it that they lose their native mildness and become morose and intolerant? It proceeds from the connection which Mr. Burke recommends. By engendering the church with the state, a sort of mule animal, capable only of destroying and not of breeding up, is produced, called the church established by law. It is a stranger, even from its birth, to any parent mother on whom it is begotten, and whom in time it kicks out and destroys. The Inquisition in Spain does not proceed from the religion originally professed, but from this mule animal engendered between the church and the state. The burnings in Smithfield proceeded from the same heterogeneous production, and it was the regeneration of this strange animal in England afterwards that renewed rancor and irreligion among the inhabitants, and that drove the people called Quakers and dissenters to America. Persecution is not an original feature in any religion, but it is always the strongly marked feature of all law religions or religions established by law. Take away the law establishment, and every religion reassumes its original benignity. In America, a Catholic priest is a good citizen, a good character, and a good neighbor. An Episcopalian minister is of the same description, and this proceeds independently of the men from there being no law establishment in America. If also we view this matter in a temporal sense, we shall see the ill effects it has had on the prosperity of nations. The union of church and state has impoverished Spain. The revoking of the Edict of Nantes drove the silk manufacture from that country into England, and church and state are now driving the cotton manufacture from England to America and France. Let, then, Mr. Burke continue to preach his anti-political doctrine of church and state. It will do some good. The National Assembly will not follow his advice, but will benefit by his folly. It was by observing the ill effects of it in England that America has been warned against it and it is by experiencing them in France that the National Assembly have abolished it, and, like America, have established universal right of conscience and universal right of citizenship. Footnote. When in any country we see extraordinary circumstances taking place, they naturally lead any man who has a talent for observation and investigation to inquire into the causes. The manufacturers of Manchester, Birmingham, and Sheffield are the principal manufacturers in England, from whence did this arise? A little observation will explain the case. The principle and the generality of the inhabitants of those places are not of what is called in England the church established by law, and they or their fathers, for it is within but a few years, withdrew from the persecution of the chartered towns where test laws more particularly operate, and established a sort of asylum for themselves in those places. It was the only asylum that then offered, for the rest of Europe was worse. But the case is now changing. France and America bid all comers welcome and initiate them into all the rights of citizenship. Policy and interest, therefore, will, but perhaps too late, dictate in England what reason and justice could not. Those manufacturers are withdrawing and arising in other places. There is now erecting in Passy, three miles from Paris, a large cotton manufactory, and several are already erected in America. Soon after the rejecting the bill for repealing the test law, one of the richest manufacturers in England said in my hearing, quote, England, sir, is not a country for a dissenter to live in. We must go to France, unquote. These are truths, and it is doing justice to both parties to tell them. It is chiefly the dissenters that have carried English manufacturers to the height they are now at, and the same men have it in their power to carry them away. 
and though those manufactures would afterwards continue in those places, the foreign market will be lost. There frequently appear in the London Gazette extracts from certain acts to prevent machines and persons, as far as they can extend to persons, from going out of the country. It appears from these that the ill effects of the test laws and church establishment begin to be much suspected, but the remedy of force can never supply the remedy of reason. In the progress of less than a century, all the unrepresented part of England of all denominations, which is at least a hundred times the most numerous, may begin to feel the necessity of a constitution, and then all those matters will come regularly before them. End of footnote. End of section 30. Recording by Colleen McMahon.